I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From WETA Classical in Washington, we're your guide to classical music. In this episode, I'm joined by WETA Classical's Evan Keeley, and we're exploring one of the most popular concertos of the 20th century, the Violin Concerto by Eric Korngold. It's loved by audiences, but more importantly, by soloists. We explore the unique sounds of this work, show you what to listen for, and talk about the position the composer found himself in after fleeing fascism in the 1930s. Plus, you might be surprised at just how influential Korngold was and continues to be. There are few, if any, concertos quite like this one by Eric Korngold. To me, it doesn't sound like any other, and it resonates with us today in a way that I think is unique among concertos. This music, it really feels like it's from our time and place, so to speak. He died decades before I was born, but his music still sounds very familiar and relatable in a way that, well, I don't think another concerto can from another century. And if you don't know this concerto or who even Korngold is, Keep listening, because I haven't met someone yet that actually dislikes this concerto, and you might be surprised at how influential Korngold was and continues to be. Plus, we'll have an interesting listener email at the end regarding Jermaine Typhair. So, Evan, who was Korngold a bit, and how did he end up in the United States um, at all here? I mean, hopefully we'll do a whole episode on him in the future, but um, how did he get here? Yeah. Korngold was born in Austria in 1897. He was a child prodigy musically. Uh, by the time he began his adulthood, he was already a big star as a composer. Uh, his opera, his third opera, Die Tote Stadt, had simultaneous premieres in two different cities on wow. the same day because his music was so much in demand. I think he was in his early, he was in his early 20s at that point. In 1934, he came to the United States. He was invited to work on a film score and uh, that developed a relationship between him and Hollywood, which ended up saving his life because you look at what's going on in Europe in the 1930s. He is born and raised in a Jewish family, and so he manages to escape the Third Reich by coming to the U.S. and becoming a film composer. And during the war, he vowed that he wouldn't write any other concert music until the Nazis and Hitler were defeated, and he kept that promise. He composed this violin concerto in 1945, probably started working on it in the late 30s. And interestingly enough, John, it's dedicated to Alma Mahler, the, yeah. the uh, spouse of uh, Gustav Mahler. Yes, that was interesting to see. And he really did keep that promise of not, well, writing stage music until the uh, Nazis and Hitler were um, defeated. And in these years between, he really takes off as a film composer really helping to form that Hollywood sound that we know. He wrote over 20 film scores. Several were nominated and won Academy Awards for Best Original Score, and he continues to inspire composers today. Yeah, he even had a whole different way of thinking about film music that ended up being very influential, the music really becoming more part of the story. Uh, he had been successful, as I was saying, as an opera composer, and he often referred to his film scores as operas without words. Mm. So he had a real theatrical sense, and that's important as we look at this concerto. Yes, and we'll see how all of that kind of plays out here in his music. Now, getting into the first movement, I was actually remembering one of our early episodes with Michelle Merrill, where she was telling us, well, what does a conductor do? And she talked about how you don't want to start a rehearsal for the first time or a piece and then stop right after the first couple of notes. 
But unfortunately, that's kind of exactly what I have to do right now because there is so much happening in just the first measure. Even just that much, there's just so much happening. So I've tried to make it in, into just uh, three quick points on what I'm hearing here. Well, first off, did the entrance sound a little sloppy or uneven? It's almost like a live recording in which maybe it was the first night and not everyone was paying attention or something. So what about a different recording? We can find other ones that start, well, pretty much exactly together. And I guess, well, which is correct? Is one right or wrong? Well, in the music, Korngold puts this squiggly vertical line next to the cello and harp entrances at the beginning. This means they are to roll the chords, the notes that are stacked on top of each other in the music, kind of like strumming a guitar slowly. Not all the notes are speaking at once, and it's not rhythmically defined in the music, which gives us this sound. It's indeterminate, a little messy. The violin comes in after they start, um, well, playing these opening notes, and it's different for every recording and every performance, I think. I prefer actually the uh, kind of messy, indeterminate sound myself. Yeah, I feel the same way, John. And you were saying at the beginning how this concerto continues to resonate. This piece is, uh, you know, almost 100 years old, and it still mm -hmm. sounds fresh. Yeah. And I agree with that. And one of the things I think that contributes to that is this kind of this messy, this sort of almost improvisatory sound. It keeps this vitality mm. and freshness, and it really it gets your attention really from the beginning in a way that's quite exciting. And again, as we were saying, this great film composer really had a sense of drama and pacing, and it's almost like he's telling a story, even though this is surely absolute music. There's no program, but uh, but it feels like it's it's taking us into some some kind of a story, some kind of an epic almost with this with this messy beginning. What's going to happen next? What's the stage being set to tell us about? Yes, improvisatory, especially like that. It sounds like it's all being weaved in front of us. The second point here, just on this first measure, he starts the solo violin part right away. There's no introduction from the, the orchestra. And it's, it's kind of like an arpeggio. Now we're in the key of D major, and an arpeggio would be D, F sharp, A, for example. But he doesn't start on D. He starts on A. He plays an A, and then a D, and then an A, and then another D. So first, using an arpeggio to start a concerto, that's old as time. Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven. I mean, it's so common to my ears. It sounds like, well, if you don't know how to start a piece... Well, just start with an arpeggio and move on from there. Right, we're just announcing, this is what key we're in, here we go. Yes. So Korngold does this in a way that's kind of like a fun house mirror. It's slightly off. It sounds slightly different. And this, the way he uses these notes, allows him to do something really nice a moment later, where instead of another A, he plays a G sharp, a tritone away from our key of D. So it could sound dissonant or, or colorful. Then there's a descending whole tone scale. And you do not need to know what any of those things even mean. You hear how the color is changing um, in the music. He's adding lots of notes right away that aren't in the key of D major, but it sounds so much nicer than it would maybe appear on, on the page. You might think it sounds a little more crunchy. Yeah, that G sharp in particular. I love it. It's like this wrong note that sounds right. Yes. You know, I, I don't know how else to describe it. And the third point here is about the introduction or maybe no introduction. We've talked so many times about these, how composers can make them 
act longer or shorter, how they can set the scene, maybe dispense with them entirely or make them super short, like maybe Beethoven's Third Symphony, for example, or a cello concerto by Sansons. But in each of those examples, they sound complete, like, yes, that's the music and that's how it was written. With Korngold and my own imagination, when I hear this in this diffuse opening, it sounds like we're starting in the middle of something, a scene already in motion or opening the door into a lecture that's already in progress. It's a little awkward. It sounds like there is music that exists before this point, and then Korngold decided, maybe at the last minute, uh, you know what, never mind. Let's all start at letter B. We're not going to play anything before that. So... It reminds me in a way of scientists when they say, oh, you know, we we know such and such particle exists or, or something else in nature, but they haven't they don't have the direct evidence yet, but they're seeing clues of it everywhere. Yeah. And again, that vagueness, that messiness we were talking about earlier, John, really captures our interest from the very beginning. Yes. So three points there on just this first measure and how much is happening, um, well, that Korngold is including. And of course, he's a film composer. We have, well, from the beginning, this theme. It's from the movie Another Dawn. Very characteristic sound. Right. A uh, melodramatic film. We don't really remember this film today, uh, but uh, you, you watch clips from it. You can find them on the internet. And uh, orchestras have recorded the soundtrack to these and other Korngold film scores. It's wonderful music in and of itself. And uh, in the film, of course, it's painting a very dramatic story. And uh, we separate that from, in this concerto, we separate the music from a story. And we, what we're left with is just this very strong emotion that is separated from any kind of a specific narrative and becomes this universal expression in a very powerful way. And he's weaving things together in this first minute and a half. There's some spinning sound with the violin, these large leaps. And then when the orchestra enters with the theme, that theme from Another Dawn, and then the violin has statements in between, this sounds huge and otherworldly. Now, the popularity of this work has mostly been driven, I think, by the violin soloists themselves wanting to uh, to perform this. There's a very personal connection, it seems, well, between violinists and this music. And there's a particular part around here that would definitely be a favorite of mine if I was a violinist. And you'll notice as well, Evan, in a lot of these entrances, the violin isn't starting on the downbeat. It might right. be starting on the upbeat or, right. or on beat two. And then there's this, it creates forward motion, and it's very easy to be overused, but I don't get that here. Yeah, well, we were talking earlier about the kind of tonal ambiguity that G-sharp at the very mm -hmm. beginning, for instance. Rhythmically also, there's a lot in this concerto where, you know, where is the downbeat? What's What beat are we on? What's the time signature? Everything kind of floats around. You look at the score, it's a little confusing to look at. But when you hear it, it doesn't sound that way at all. It just sounds like this very natural, very flowing kind of experience. Like everything is exactly where it should be. And uh, it's just one of the remarkable things about Korngold as a composer. He's able to write these very complex, sort of confusing things that sound right. Yeah, confusing things that sound right. Because you look at the score, when I was looking at it, and I never actually really looked at it, yeah, you see, oh, that's how that's written out, or that's how that's um, being done there. And another theme from a movie, one called uh, Juarez, I think. It's a love theme. 
I imagine in 1945 and the 1940s, people in the audience, many of them would have recognized some of these. Yeah, I don't know how popular these films were in their day. Some of them, like I was saying, like Another Dawn, we don't really watch that movie anymore. Uh, but, you know, in, in, back in the 30s and 40s, when Korngold's movies were more popular, yeah, you wonder if people in the audience, oh, oh, I recognize that, who knows? But uh, again, as I was saying, John, you know, if you separate these themes from the films from which they originated, uh, they, they represent something very different as absolute music, as music without a program that's still e somehow even more compelling. Yes. He's really painting with um, different brushes, all these different colors into the, into the music. And I love the sound here towards the middle of the movement. There's a bass clarinet, I think. It's kind of transitional. The sound is being kind of um, whirled around a bit. But instead of the theme being brought right back in by the soloist, it's done by different instruments, with the soloist having these interrupting declarations that feel more sinister, more um, like a jokester in a kind of maybe dark kind of way. And, yeah. it, and this all happens before um, a cadenza for the soloist. There are several composers I think we can hear within um, this music. Strauss, for one, especially these triplets, da -dee -da -da -dee -da -dum, those kinds of lines, so Strauss um, in my mind. He uses them a lot in his um, music here. And it's something actually that predates his movies even from his string quartet number one, I believe. He uses a lot of these kinds of figures as well. Yeah, yeah. And you definitely hear that influence. Like we were talking about Mahler, another composer who influenced Korngold very much. So Richard Strauss, Gustav Mahler. Korngold is very much in that vein. And he was also very immersed in the music of Johann Strauss. In fact, he even discovered some Johann Strauss scores that had been laid aside or forgotten and was really uh, kind of an expert on the music of Johann Strauss. So this, you know, this Viennese waltz kind of style, but also the more post-romantic style of a Richard Strauss are both influences that we hear very much in this concerto. And much like Richard Strauss, the one of the main points I want people to come away with Korngold is how he's able to point the music in any direction that he, he wants. If you think of centuries past, some of these you know, very big changes in texture or timbre or keys or whatever, they were they would require a little more preparation from the composer. They would, you know, follow steps one, two, three, and four before going to it or maybe like a huge ship that takes a long distance to turn around. Here with Korngold, he picks it up and turns it around and throws it in the other direction. Yeah, it, there's lots of spontaneity in this, especially in this first movement of this concerto. And after the cadenza, there is this beautiful moment for the entire violin section. They take over the theme before the soloist uh, comes back in, and it's a little bit different. It's just not. It's not just an entire section playing this theme as they would in a symphony it's like the section is a soloist themselves and they're playing with the same style or inflection as the soloist it's just it's a different sound here than just another section taking over the theme It's a recapitulation that kind of re-emphasizes that main theme in a way that's very effective. Yeah. And so far, you may have noticed the accompaniment here, it's also a bit diffuse in terms of like the relationship. If you think of a concerto like by Haydn or Mozart, it's so clear 
accompaniment and soloist, or, or even later for, for something adversarial between orchestra and piano, like uh, with Franz Liszt. And I think this frees Korngold up to do, well, more interesting things, especially this moment. It might be hard to hear, but I love how he spins some of the winds around during an ascending entrance of the of the soloist. It adds a whole new kind of sound to it in a way that reminds me of you know, like a Ravel in Bolero. And I really was not joking, Evan, when I was saying that Korngold can turn the orchestra around on a dime. In the final minute of this concerto, when I listen to it, it really feels like it's going to end a certain way. We're going to end maybe more warm, resolute, coming down, and then there's a nice little boom in the cello and bass. Right, and that would have worked really well. And yet Korngold tricks us yet again, just as he's been doing throughout this movement, you know, from the very beginning with that weird G sharp, that's a wrong note that sounds right, or rhythms that are very ambiguous, but they sound... They flow very nicely, and once again, he has this turning on a dime, the spontaneity we've been talking about that just keeps our interest to the very end of the movement. It's only a few seconds that it happens in the final seconds here, but the color and the, the sinister stabbing and the, and the violence is beautiful. Now, this concerto sounds pretty movie-like, can't deny it. I mean, there's also movie themes in it, after all, even though we don't uh, recognize them, maybe. So does this sound movie-like because he was a movie composer or because movie composers copied him in subsequent uh, decades? I think, in a sense, in a way I did not realize until really recently, his sound has truly lived on through um, film composers. He is definitely a very—he remains a very influential film composer. As I was saying earlier, John, he really revolutionized the whole idea of a film score and integrating the music into the story in a way that was much richer than previous composers for films had done. And that really shaped the way a lot of composers since then and to this day write for film. And— John Williams, who I guess would be the corn gold for us today, writing the themes that we've come to know and love. He's not shy about how much corn gold has been an influence um, on him, and most film composers are pretty open about that as well. I mean, let's just take a moment here from a movie you've probably never heard, King's Row. Let's listen to a moment of this. Very nice. I like it. Now, how about this by John Williams? I was almost in disbelief when I heard that the first time. Yeah, you can't deny that there's a similarity there. And as you said, John, John Williams has been quite outspoken in recognizing and being grateful for the influence of Korngold on his music as a composer. It's fascinating, too. We were talking earlier about how Korngold vowed to only write film scores until the Nazis were defeated. But I wondered the extent to which, as a film composer, he was thinking to himself, okay, here's this theme that I'm writing for this film. Oh, someday I want to use this for a concerto. Someday I'm going to reuse this kind of music for an opera. Like, he's he's thinking about the future, you know. is it, we, we, It's easy to say, oh, he took this theme in this concerto from this film. But what was he thinking about when he wrote that for that film? Was he thinking about ways in which he would then use this music in the future for concert music? We don't know, but it's a fascinating thing to think about. I think I agree with you on that. 
he has to have some kind of hope, I imagine, for the future as well as he's looking back to his home um, in, in Austria and seeing and seeing what's happened. So I, I imagine there was some kind of hope. And well, being the composer that he was, I'm sure he was tucking away some ideas. Oh, I, I like this, and I think it would work great for maybe this or that. Like any great composer, he's not afraid to reuse material and readapt it for other purposes. And we see this going through the ages. You look at a composer like Johann Sebastian Bach, for instance, mm -hmm. did that all the time. So we don't need to worry about a lack of originality. It's just a composer being creative and finding different ways to say similar things over a period of time in different contexts. And we'll get into the second movement right after this. Classical Breakdown, your guide to classical music, is made possible by WETA Classical. Join us for the music and insightful commentary anytime, day, or night. You can stream the music online at wetaclassical.org or through the WETA Classical app. It's free in the App Store. So we get to the second movement now, which he calls a, a romance or a romanza. This opens a little lower in sound. It feels relaxed. There's this kind of droning to it. And there's a little bit of unique timbre here as well with the addition of vibraphone to some of these sustained chords. And when the soloist comes in, they are quite high, again, not entering on a downbeat, and it sounds like they are just floating above the orchestra. And again, there's that rhythmic ambiguity, which is a characteristic of Korngold's style. You look at the score, and I, I, you know, I mean, John, you and I both went to music school. <laughs> I look at this score, there's all these triplets and ties, and you come in on an offbeat, and I'm sitting there, it's like tapping my pencil on the desk trying to reproduce the rhythm. It took me a few minutes. And when you listen to it, it just sounds like the most natural thing, like a person walking down the street would whistle this tune. Uh, it doesn't sound like this overly intellectual thing. And Korngold just has this gift of creating these very very sophisticated and complex things, which just sounds so natural. And even though this is a middle slow movement, this is not any easier. As you were just saying, the, there's a lot to take care of with the, the rhythms. And also, if you play them exactly precisely like a robot, that's not gonna, going to sound nice either. Yeah. There has to be a natural um, ebb and flow to it. Well, as you were saying, John, a lot of soloists want to play this concerto, you know, mm -hmm. and having to adapt those rhythmic ambiguities in a way that sounds exciting for an audience is a wonderful and exciting challenge for a soloist, I would think. And what about this being called a, a romance, which is something he didn't really give a title similar to in the other movements? Yeah, that's, a, that's an old tradition to call something a romance. You think about there's these two works by Beethoven, the Opus 40 and the Opus 50, an uh, orchestral work for a viol with a violin solo in a single movement. It's very often a slow, lyrical kind of a piece uh, that highlights the soloist. Uh, so I, I think that I'm pretty sure Korngold is evoking that tradition, which goes back centuries, in calling this movement a romanza. And there's a second part of the theme, and it's somewhat rhythmically similar to the first, but we're getting more elaborate here. The harmonic language becomes more complex, and the soloist has us entranced, hanging onto every note. And for me, when I listen to this movement, it reminds me of, like, when you're a kid and you're at the library and they're reading you a story or, or in, um, in class, I remember those moments and you just, nothing else exists around you, almost tunnel vision, yeah. which are just kind of hung onto every word 
similar here with, with every note. This is a very active, slow movement. There's not a lot of time to really relax for the soloist even, and even for the listener. We're being brought along every measure, but it doesn't feel like we're having to to work hard for it. Yeah, there's an edge-of-the-seat quality, and yet we're just sort of trusting the composer to just bring us on this trip that we're eager to go on. About halfway through this movement, there's another moment where it sounds kind of creepy and sinister, and it actually reminded me of Respighi's Pines of Rome. Yes. That middle movement where yeah. things take on a different hue or feeling. I really feel that here, and I, and I love how he's... Um, incorporating that. One other thing that I want to point out that shows how Korngold is just really adept at at rhythm and keeping the story going is how he's doing so much by simply moving a note around an octave. There's a point where it's just playing a note and it goes to an octave higher and then it goes back down. Before in the past, a composer like um, Schumann, for example, would have um, a sustained note for maybe two or three measures while the piano was building up, you know, a phrase or something underneath. And I find something similar here, but he's changing the octave and rhythmically in a way that adds this forward motion to it and adds intrigue to it that you otherwise would not get. And as we've been saying, John, you know, this is a film composer. This is a composer who really has a sense of drama. He has a sense of pacing. There's a kind of a theatricality to the music. And it's one of the things I appreciate about this piece. Again, this is absolute music. This is not program music. There's no story. He's not trying to depict a particular scene. But you really feel that sense of him as a dramatist in this music. You know, I don't hear a storyline in this music. One could easily daydream a storyline while listening to this, but I hear in this piece, in this concerto, I hear a composer who understands the use of ideas and themes. He has such a skill in weaving something that just moves the drama forward and keeps us engaged. And in the final moments of this movement, you might think, oh, we're going to get a nice beautiful repetition of what we heard in the beginning to bring us down uh, gently, but that never really comes quite back, does it? Yeah, there's no recap. We just had this very beautiful thing at the very beginning. We're expecting it to come back. I'm expecting it to come back anyway, and it doesn't, and there's this, it adds a sort of a poignant quality to that thing which we experienced. It was beautiful, and it's gone forever. We move on. And I like that you point that out because it gives me a, a certain kind of feeling, this movement, how it's it's active, it doesn't really rest, and there's no recapitulation of that uh, big theme, that first theme at the end. It's like um, when you go on a walk, there's um, like fields and forests where I live, and you know I go on a walk and it's lots of hills, and maybe 10 or 15 minutes will go by, and then you know don't even really think about it, you turn around, and you see the where I started was so far away. Yeah. And that's how it feels here, where musically we've gone on a long journey away, and that opening theme is really in the distance. It's really gone. It's gone forever. Now, what about the premiere of this piece? How how did that go? Well, it premiered in February 1947 with the St. Louis Symphony and Yasha Heifetz playing, and it was to great acclaim, I understand. Yes, Yasha Heifetz was a real advocate for this piece. Uh, he had encountered it with, uh, you know, he knew Corn Gold, and he was very excited to play this piece. Of course, he was already a superstar in that era. Mm -hmm. So this was a real coup for Korngold as he's returning to life as a concert music composer. And the fact that this premiere went so well 
Hall was certainly a boost. Uh, played again in New York uh, later on. Uh, didn't do quite as well. Uh, New York Times called it a Hollywood concerto. Uh, there was a music critic in the New York Sun who described it as more corn than gold. Ouch. I mean, honestly, that's a rare win for me for a critic, more <laughs> corn than gold. I mean, there's only two ways he came up with that, either one on the on the cab ride home. <laughs> uh, just kind of, well, that stupid control, more corn than gold, more corn than gold. Irving, you son of a gun, you did it again. Uh, that was his name, Irving. Or he got home and his spouse, his wife is, um, I think her name was Irma, at the table reading the newspaper and he's complaining about it and then you know in that kind of accent you know sounds like more corn than gold dear uh-huh. and then ah that's it so i i thought that was kind of funny i wonder if there was a sense of i have no idea east coast versus west coast him coming from hollywood and yeah. la yeah, in new york could be. but um obviously there was and everyone loves the piece uh sense but i thought that was funny <laughs> And it brings us into the third movement, which is also the shortest movement. It has an explosive opening that sounds like he just copy and pasted it right out of Stravinsky's uh, Firebird. And then the soloist takes off with a jig. This one is so much fun. And it feels like this movement is on rails, like a train, like the, the route is predetermined. It's a kind of music, fast, uh, tons of notes, everything happening. You. Musicians, I say it sometimes before you play a piece like this, you know, the, to the person next to you. All right, see you on the other side. Yeah, you're boarding the express train and the doors close and off you go. And the theme for this is taken from The Prince and the Popper. Then, well, it's variations on this theme. We have lots of triplets that cycle through different sequences. Again, that reminds me of Richard Strauss. And I want to point out, Evan, a moment towards the beginning that I think it happens a couple of times where the soloist is playing a very, very fast, quick run of notes, staccato, short notes. And it happens so fast, you really might need to listen to it. You may not even catch it the first couple of times because because soloists are so good at playing this now. But Korngold writes in the score for this one beat, Ricochet, and it's a bunch of notes that are so fast. Ricochet means what you think might be happening. The violinist is throwing the bow, so to speak, onto the string and then using the bow's own recoil to bounce or ricochet off of the string several times in rapid succession. Kind of like maybe, um, you know, with a ruler on the edge of a table, you know, when you're in school right. making that noise right. or with your pencil. And uh, it's it happens in the blink of an eye, and it takes so much uh, practice to make it sound even and natural. But I just love this moment and how fast it goes by. I don't know how well Korngold played the violin. He was more of a... a he was a, quite a virtuoso pianist. We know that for sure. Clearly, he knows the instrument. He knows the violin, and he understands its capabilities. We often think of the violin, the stereotype is this very sensuous sound, you know, very lyrical, these high notes and these long melodies. And of course, the violin does that beautifully, but it's also a percussion instrument. And having the bow strike the strings in this very percussive way, it really uh, creates this dramatic effect. Again, as you said, John, it takes a real skilled soloist to pull this off. Right now, Capuzon, who's a performance we've been enjoying in this episode certainly has that skill uh, but it's it's a, it's a very dramatic and exciting effect and as fast and frenetic and wild as this is 
it has to be in control. It has to, well, have some kind of balance to it as well. And the orchestral accompaniment, you'll hear, it's not heavy. It is quite light, even if it's more swirling around and less delineated like um, Haydn or, or Mozart would do. And when I think about movies and film scores and big moments, Evan, I mean, what is the hero? The hero is almost always the horn, like the horn section. And I like that he saved this moment for later on in the concerto towards the end because it feels like a huge, well-deserved payoff. Yes, the moment you've been waiting for. And even here, how I said the first movement ends a little unexpectedly, it does with this finale, in my opinion, um, as well. It sounds like it might just end on a big, you know, bum, just one chord like that. But he gives that Hollywood, you know, forte piano, then uh, swells into the final note. There's a kind of edginess to this very ending of the piece. There's an almost like a wink of the eye kind of, uh, I don't know how to describe it. It has that same quality that we've talked about throughout the piece where it sounds wrong and yet it's so right. Yeah. Uh, and it just, you know, he, he brings that through, That he brings that quality through to the very end in a way that's so exciting. And this is a great piece to improve your own listening skills with because there's so many little things happening underneath a soloist or in a kind of swirling, less clear way in the orchestra. So when you listen to this, I mean, I'm still hearing new things when I listen to this. So when you hear this, listen for something different each time, maybe a different section or a different aspect of the music, um, especially with the finale and all of these things happening at the same time. I mean, this is a wonderful concerto, one of my favorite, and it's not long. It's just the right amount of uh, sweetness, if you will. Yeah, yeah. So Korngold had a rather unique life and experience, particularly because of, um, well, him with the movies and fleeing uh, World War II. His other music, besides his movie music, is also really nice. He wrote things before he was writing for film and after, of course, one of them being string quartets. And you can hear the difference between the ones he wrote before and after, He started writing for movies, but it's not that big of a difference as you might think. I was listening to the first one and I thought, oh, this maybe this was after he started, you know, in Hollywood. And I go and look it up. Oh, this was before. And so it was really nice to hear that sound. So I'll put some links on the show notes page for that as well. Yeah, this is, again, a child prodigy who kind of found his genius early. Uh, There's definitely a development of his style over time. But as you said, John, it's not a huge change in his style. He seems to have found his voice early in life and figured out different ways through the vicissitudes of human history and his own life experience to continue to express himself in an authentic way. And I think it's a good cue for us to think of, well, who's writing music for our time and place? What composers are fitting this today? I think there's several composers like Carlos Simon, of course, of course, a favorite here in in Washington, D.C., Michael Giacchino, Caroline Shaw as well. There's a lot of composers who are writing music, I think, that can resonate with us, either musically or at least in the topic that they're writing about. 
And with that, it's time to get to that email I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. And it's in response to an episode we did on Jermaine Taifair. George wrote in, and he was responding to a quote we read from someone really criticizing Taifair in a pretty unfair way, comparing her to like a dog walking on their, um, on their hind legs. So we have a portion of this email here, and it really paints a a nice picture here, I think, for um, what we were doing in that episode. So, Evan, read us this little bit here that George included. I wanted to mention something about the quote you noted from the critic whose name I did not bother remembering. When you read it, a smile came to my face, not because the quote is clever and humorous, which it is, but because I recognized it as something Samuel Johnson said from Boswell's biography of him, I told him I had been that morning at a meeting of the people called Quakers where I had heard a woman preach. And Johnson said, Sir, a woman's preaching is like a dog's walking on his hind legs. It is not done well, but you are surprised to find it done at all. So not only is that critic completely unknown, but the only instance I have ever heard of him came from him lifting what someone else said back in 1791. Anyway, thanks so much for the episode. I listen to all of the podcasts faithfully and enjoy being entertained and informed. Cheers. George. Well, George, thank you so much for your feedback. We uh, certainly appreciate you listening to Classical Breakdown. Yes, thank you, George. And I love that we can shame that critic just a a little bit more. (laughs) There was a win for a critic in this episode, so we can even it out here uh, with that plagiarism already. All right. Well, thank you so much, Evan, for joining me for this and all things Korngold's Violin Concerto. Thank you, John. I'm going to continue to explore and appreciate this great concerto by Korngold. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown, your guide to classical music. For more information on this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. You can send me comments and episode ideas to classicalbreakdown at weta.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review in your podcast app. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from WETA Classical. Classical.